Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Demetra George about her new book that just came out, Ancient Astrology in Theory and Practice, Volume 2, that was just released uh, today, basically, um, where we're recording this on uh, Tuesday, April 19th, 2022, starting at 1.23 p.m. in Denver, Colorado. So, hey, Demetra, uh, welcome hey, back to the show and congratulations on the release of the book. Oh, thank you. It's been a long road and I'm really happy to be um, close to the finish line at this moment. Yeah, um, this has been a long time in coming. You've been working intensely on this book for the past several years as the second in a two-volume series on ancient Hellenistic astrology and the origins of Western astrology, basically. But it's also something you've been working on on a longer time frame since you started seriously studying Hellenistic astrology 20 years ago in, in 2002, right? Right. Well, I think it was even longer than that. And then reflecting, it goes back to 1993 when... At that time, I was an astrologer, very immersed in the mythic asteroids and goddess spirituality and astrology. And at um, a Norwalk conference, I heard Rob Hand announce the beginning of Project Hindsight. That was April of 1993. And because I had had a sort of past life regression that showed me translating ancient texts um, in the Renaissance period, I thought to myself when I heard Rob's announcement that they were reclaiming the tradition of ancient Greek and Latin astrological texts, I thought, oh, perhaps I have some connection with this. So I marched up and handed over my visa card. And that um, Rob later told me that I was the first subscriber to Project Hindsight. So it was at that moment, exactly 30 years ago now, that I realized like I put my foot on the path that would inevitably lead me to this point, um, having completed these two works. Though I didn't know that at the time. Nevertheless, like once I was on that path, it seemed like there was hardly any leeway to get myself off of it. Right. And that project, Project Hindsight itself, start that you signed up for in April of 1993 yeah. and became the first subscriber had itself only started a year earlier based on a series of conversations that happened at the United Astrology Conference mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C. in May of 1992, I think, right? Um, yes, it was in May of 1992. And when we were reflecting back to the first um, connections. That was in May. I think it was in August. There was an AFA conference in Chicago. And at that, people I knew invited me to a local house party of people they sort of knew that was happening. And I went, and Bob and Ellen and Zoller and Rob were all at that house party. And so... Um, Within a few months of that, I had the opportunity long before I fully understood what would um, unfold in the future, um, one could say the fate lines began to cross. Right. So, um, I mean, that's really 
kind of crazy and kind of wild that it all started with Project Hindsight exactly almost 30 years ago to the month, Yes, <laughs> um, which makes it a, a complete Saturn cycle of like Saturn and Aquarius coming back around 30 right. years later. So um, I guess what was big at that time, though, historically, is just everybody, to give some context, everybody had been practicing astrology, modern astrology, what we call modern astrology mm -hmm. as, which is the type of astrology practiced in the West um, by the time of the late 20th century. And most modern astrologers didn't have access to and hadn't read many of the texts from prior to the 20th century because they were locked away in ancient languages like Greek and Latin that most people couldn't read. And so that was what was novel or unique at that time is that a group of astrologers got together and started translating some of those texts so that modern astrologers could read them. Right. For us modern astrologers, not only was there the sense we couldn't read them because they were locked away, we didn't even know that they existed. And there was a way in which when we began to learn astrology in the 19 late 60s and 1970s people of my generation, we naively thought that the kind of astrology that we were studying was the way it had always been done. And there was no awareness whatsoever that there was a whole tradition behind that that had gone on for 2,000 years that was obscured to all of us <clears throat> until the work of Project Hindsight began uncovering and revealing it. And that was one of the great revelations that it took my generation a while to fully comprehend what was going on and the import of what was trying to be done. Right. And so even though so early on there was a feeling i get the sense and i hear from a lot of astrologers a lot of astrologers who were active during that time period that um, they thought it was a good idea once it started being promoted by robert schmidt and robert zoller and robert hand of project hindsight and and contemporary astrologers would sign up for this novel subscription service where they were releasing translations each month on a subscription basis and astrologers would sign up but that once they got the books sitting down and even reading the translations even once they were in English was a whole nother matter and turned out to be a lot more challenging and complicated than anybody expected so that it didn't necessarily for right. the first 10 years have the the immediate impact that that it might have Right. I mean, until right. that, was that was absolutely true. We, and like excitement, we get the I get the translation, and open up and read it. And I had no idea whatsoever what it was saying. It still could have been in ancient Greek and Latin for all I actually understood. And I remember early on going to one of Rob Hand's uh, lectures on um, Hellenistic aspects that he was giving at a conference. And he was tossing all of this Hellenistic jargon around of spear bearers and maltreatment and the projection of rays. And it was incomprehensible. And I remember going up to Rob or asking a question. I said, but what does it mean? Like, how do we use it in charts? Like, what's the benefit of it? And he said, we don't know yet. At this stage, our job is simply to translate it. And we're telling you what we're translating it, 
but it will take a number of years before we actually understand what it means and how to apply it and utilize it in <clears throat> contemporary chart interpretations. They said, we're not there yet. Right. So the initial phases of the translation project were just translating and recovering all this stuff. And then it took a number of years to start to put it together and figure out what to do with it and and how it fit together. And then so that's that's eventually where you came in around 2002 when you got seriously interested in studying Hellenistic astrology in, in the practice and the techniques. And then by that point, some of the people associated with Project Hindsight had started really putting it together more. Right. And I can't say that I got seriously interested in it. It was um, more like I was put in the position to um, learn it lest I be like totally embarrassed and humiliated. And I had, um, in the late 90s, I'd returned to a university to get my uh, master's degree. And at that point, even though I'd been a subscriber of hindsight, I was still very involved in my mythological studies. And I wanted training to be able to do a more scholarly level of myth. So when my children were raised and gone enough that I could return to school, I looked at the departments available and I thought the classics was the one, that, the, the department that would most be suitable for a study of Greek mythology. And I remember the professor saying, he said, well, you can do that here, but you have to take Greek and Latin because that's what we do. And I said, well, okay, whatever. And then that brought me into that. And then because I was going to have the master's degree in the right field for the beginnings of Kepler College by the time I graduated, and the board needed people with a certain academic credentials, Kepler College asked me to be part of their first year faculty to teach the history of ancient astrology. So I still wasn't there with the actual practice of it. But as the story goes, after the first year of Kepler teaching um, the ancient time period, it um, coalesced with a NORWAC conference, yet NORWAC once again comes into play, where Project Hindsight had a booth, Alan White showed up, he gave an impromptu lecture on Hellenistic astrology. Many of our Kepler students attended they were fascinated and they came to me and they said, why aren't we learning about this? Isn't this part of our curriculum? And I said, yes, it is. So that prompted me to go um, to Cumberland where Robert Schmidt was giving an intensive and that was in the summer of 2001. And during that week, it was as if my old astrology like crumbled away. I had visions of what a traditional astrology could look like. And I was, it was at that point that I was inspired with both the passion and the realization that it had to be taught. So it was in that next year that I arranged to both get permission from Kepler College to add it to the curriculum, permission from Robert Schmidt and Ellen Black to actually offer it. And then um, 
arrange with Ellen White to be able to spend winter in Cumberland, um, Virginia area, where both Alan and Bob supervised me in creating the course. And hence, the first class happened at Kepler College in 2002. And so that's the evolution of that. And once again, it wasn't, oh, I need to teach this. But circumstances conspired to put me in a position where that was obviously the right thing to do in terms of a certain academic integrity that if we're going to teach the history of astrology in the ancient cultures, then my goodness, we should teach the practice of it as well. Right. And so not too long after that, that began a, a series of where you eventually started teaching Hellenistic astrology to groups of students at Kepler College. And it was it was like the, the only place or one of the only places in the world for this period of time in the 2000s where um, students of astrology were, were learning some of the foundational principles of ancient astrology from 2,000 years ago in literally in centuries. And so at that time, though, what was unique about that, and that's where I started studying Hellenistic astrology in 2004 and 2005 was, was under you at Kepler, but it was kind of an exclusive thing um, because it was just Kepler college students who were learning this, which is a relatively small group. And um, you had these very detailed uh, lecture notes and written um, notes that went along with the translations in order to help student guide students through them and make them understand them. But for many years, that was pretty much the only place that you could seriously study Hellenistic astrology. And now, fast forward almost 20 years later, um, Part of what you've published now and completed with volume two of this series is all of your work and all of your notes that used to be exclusive to just the Kepler College students, as well as a lot of work that you've done in the interim over the past two decades and researching and putting this material into practice is now available for, for every everyone in the world. Right. Right. And that's in combination with your book on Hellenistic astrology and the course that you offer. And I feel both of us have participated in being um, intermediaries and stepping stones between the initial translation of these works and putting them into a form to make them accessible to our community at large and sort of anchor and ensure the continuity that future generations of astrologers will have access to the beginnings of the Western astrological tradition. So it's been very much something in tandem that we've done together. Yeah. And, and I love that people have been reading our books together because they really complement each other very well. Um, but it's a, it's a necessary step because it's incredibly hard to just sit down and read a translation of like Ptolemy or Vadius Valens and really understand what they're doing. You really need a primer and you need somebody to guide you through the terminology and some of the exotic techniques and things like that. And that's really especially what your book is, is best for because it has not just the instructional portions where you talk people through things, but also it has um, workbook sections at the end of each chapter where they can go through and apply the concepts to their own chart step by step. Yes, and my many years of being a teacher, I found that that's one of the important keys and actually 
making the material your own. It's not simply listening to it, but having a structure that organizes the way and the order of how you think about it and the order that allows you to interpret it and make meaning and sense. So the workbook portions are very much like a a program text that leads you through a structured process of first this, then that, then that, that brings you to an interpretation that follows naturally from the previous steps instead of like having to make it come out of your head from like nothing. Right. Yeah. And so that's something you've been able to refine now through 20 years of teaching this material and teaching ancient astrology um, and then being able to integrate it into this book. And to circle back around, I mean, the other thing I think that's really important and just I was trying to find the date of the United Astrology Conference in 1992, and I'm having trouble finding the exact date, but we know it was in May of 1992. So I pulled up the chart for that, and it has Saturn somewhere around the middle of Aquarius, around 17, 17, 18 degrees of Aquarius. Um, Yeah, 17, 18, 19 Aquarius in May of 1990. Oh, it's stationed. Actually, that's funny. So Saturn Saturn actually stationed towards the end of May of 1992 at 18 degrees of Aquarius. And you know what? It probably was one of those ones like most United Astrology conferences where they end up falling really close to Labor Day weekend, which is towards the end of May. So I bet you it was pretty close to that. Memorial Day weekend. Memorial Day. Okay, yeah, yeah. thanks. Mm -hmm. Um, So... And then, of course, now Saturn is currently at 23 degrees of Aquarius. So this is the Saturn return. And the other thing that's important about that is just it helps to me. I feel like symbolically the publication of your book brings to completion everything that was started back then in 1992 with Project Hindsight and with the movement to revive and recover Hellenistic astrology, which not everybody you know, that founded it got a chance to see that to completion because we had the, you know, we've lost some some major astrologers that played a really important role in that movement, um, such as, you know, Robert Schmidt a few years ago who passed away, who was the primary Greek translator, um, Robert Zoller, who also passed away, and even um, Robert Hand, even though he's still around and is still active, um, because he was focusing on his PhD so much over the course of the past decade or two, had never has never really published a follow-up book that outlines his approach to ancient astrology at this point so far. So I feel like your book, with the publication of your book, it really brings things full circle from 30 years ago. Um, yes, you should also mention Alan White in that list, who was a critical link, as Al- Alan used to say. You know, Schmidt would translate the Greek, and then Alan would translate Schmidt. Right. And then Alan conveyed it to me. <laughs> and yeah. in that process, I would write it down and give it back to Alan, who would make corrections, and he would give it back to Schmidt, who would make his corrections, and then we'd get it to the Kepler students. But Alan was a very important person in this transmission happening. And um, I think... Schmidt would have never have had the time or the patience to work with me in getting those teachings clarified in the way that Alan had so that they could be 
accessible to the Kepler students. Yeah. And Alan always said that he needed to translate the translator was like, right. the, the in, it was a little joking inside joke, but it was yeah. also kind of true that, yeah, um, that the, the way that Schmidt thought about the material was very high level and the way that he unpacked it certainly was, he had a way of systemizing it in a way that was brilliant, but also not easily accessible to the entry level student. So there were a few like intermediate steps that had to yes. happen in the transmission of this material to contemporary astrologers. Um, and Alan, um, I got, Alan passed away about a decade ago, but I asked him to record for me um, his famous intro to Hellenistic astrology mm -hmm. flip chart lecture, which I actually released as an episode of the astrology podcast. Yeah. Um, a couple of years ago. Well, weirdly, actually, it looks like it's exactly two years ago on April 20th, 2020. Oh, interesting. That's great. So this is pretty much, I mean, it's not because he was um, sick towards the end of his life. He didn't have quite the same vigor that he had probably when he originally presented it 10 years earlier when you saw it in 2002. But it was still, this is essentially the lecture that you got that night at at the Northwest Astrology Conference right, with that group. Right, fired up all the initial Kepler students when they heard Alan's lecture. They were raving afterwards with um, excitement that we have to learn this, this material. Right. So that's an important step if people want to go back and watch that, just understand the context. But then with this book, um, and here... Once again, is the cover for those watching the video version. So it's titled Ancient Astrology in Theory and Practice, A Manual of Traditional Techniques, Volume 2. Um, this goes into just a huge amount of depth and some of those things that maybe Alan touched on in passing in that short you know, 90-minute lecture. But this is um, the second part in what ends up being over 1200 pa over 1200 pages when you combine it with with volume one just going into detail on just about every major um, area of Hellenistic astrology so with this book um, the first book primarily focused on the planets and determining planetary condition whereas in volume two you really focused on the houses and identifying the different rulers of the birth chart right Yes, uh, in some ways, the book on the houses was called Down to Earth. Uh, volume one was on the condition of the planets as they are in the sky, pretty much for everyone on that day. But what makes them unique to an individual is at the moment of birth, what houses they fall into in a specific birth chart as defined by the degree of the ascendant to the rising sign. And that's where celestial influences become manifest in the earth realm and then actually express in all of the different kinds of activities and experiences that we encounter in our own journeys from life into death. Um, and so those, on the simplest levels, what the houses represent is the spectrum of human experiences. So that's the larger concept of how a planet with all of its more fortunate and more challenged um, predispositions actually is able to bring forth its agenda by using, and in some ways having to use, the topics of the house that it finds itself in. Um, 
at the time of a person's birth. So I think that's like the, the big picture. And then the book starts out with understanding the various ways the houses have been classified and how that impacts um, their dynamic strength, strength and potency, their um, assignment of the favorable and more challenging topics of life that people have to encounter, and uh, their range of responsibilities, and looking at those significations of the houses. Right. So um, it really has a lot to do then, part of it, with going back to what were the original meanings of the houses and what were those derived from conceptually or, or symbolically? Yeah. Um, yes. And so I looked at that, but I also, the more I got into it, the more I went through how some of those um, significations changed or were added to during the Persian medieval period, and then what came in during the Renaissance, and then what new significations came in during the modern, early modern and contemporary periods, and trying to find the common theme that ran through all of them. And my, my what is, what, what, what's the right word here? Operating principle is every generation of astrologers will take astrology and shape it in certain ways that it begins to reflect back to them the meaning and topics that are relevant in their own lives. It is inevitable that people will do that. And so in the process of that, in the course of that, new meanings get added in, old meanings get tossed out because they're no longer applicable. Um, but in order to keep the essential core principles of astrology have some vertical integrity and uniformity, the question is, do the new significations, do they in some way conform to the principles that lie underneath the meanings of the earlier significations? And that that is one measuring tool that we can use for um, evaluating which significators are relevant, important work. And I found that to be especially important in the um, years I was working with um, the research arm of the AFA and attended um, several research conferences and saw astrologers using very advanced statistical methods with huge amounts of data to decide if like some meaning of a sign or planet or house panned out in analyzing many thousands of charts. And at a certain point that I remember, there was a meaning of, I think there may have been looking at Uranus, where they expected um, the spread to be of individuals who were erratic and unconventional um, individualistic, rebellious, and instead what their data showed was that you had ultra-conservative personalities showing up under 
large concentrations of Aquarian energy. And I remember having one of those conversations at a conference on a balcony, drinking wine after hours, and saying, but of course, you know, Saturn's the ancient ruler of Aquarius. It makes total sense that you might get a very conservative finger under that energy. And the modern astrology was just sort of shocked as if that was totally new information to them. And at that point, I realized how important it is that astrologers as a community have the gamut of the different significations that have come through the tradition, which one of those have remained at the core, which have been trends of the moment that then get discarded in order to do the kind of statistical research that now um, the computers and AI and all of that are making it very easy to do. So that's sort of a long background to in my essays on each house, there's an appendix for each house chapter where I've looked at the um, Hellenistic, the Arabic, the Latin medieval, the Renaissance, the early modern, the modern significations of the houses so that people actually can see the continuity and change of house meanings over time. Yeah, and I think that's possibly like the most important or most useful contribution of this book that readers will find is that for every single one of the houses, you have this section um, where you will go through a bunch of ancient Greek and Latin Hellenistic authors, and you will list, for example, here I have a few pages up from the fifth house, mm -hmm. tr the treatment of the fifth house and its significations or topics. And you'll cite the Hellenistic astrologers, the earliest ones from the earliest to the latest ones first of like Hermes and what Hermes says the fifth house signifies, what Thrasylus, Antiochus, and Valens and others say signify um, by the fifth house. And then you'll move into the medieval Arabic authors and you'll show what they said the fifth house signifies. And then later you'll even move into some of the Renaissance author, the late medieval and Renaissance authors, and then finally some of the modern 20th century authors, especially English astrologers, what they thought the fifth house signified. And in that way, you can see both some of the continuity in the tradition over the past 2000 years and how there has been a great deal of continuity in um, the transmission of astrology and just the conceptualization of what certain houses mean, but then how also there's been either drift or sometimes in some instances even very radical changes in astrologers' understanding of what the houses mean. Mm -hmm. Right. So that was that was fascinating, and then that was reflected in my essays about each house that I wanted to make the material um, applicable to a contemporary astrologer. So I began with some of the earliest Hellenistic, but then I brought it forward to how it has been since um, shaped by more modern and contemporary astrologers, particularly in terms of themes that are meaningful and relevant to today's practitioner. So the house essays aren't strictly ancient, but they show that development over time. Right. And so... Um... Part of the purpose of that is just to show the contrast as well as the continuity and 
maybe in doing so give people a much broader perspective about um, you know what the houses have meant over time so that they can then make their own informed decision about exactly. what they think each house should mean in practice or what it could mean in practice. Right. And there are certain houses where the ancient meanings were very clear, but those significations fell out of the transmission process and in many cases I think are very important that they be recognized and added back in today, um, not as new things we're making up and just sticking somewhere, but seeing that their roots have exist there and they've always been part of that, um, those meanings. So one of the e examples um, is that the name of the third house, well, in contemporary astrology, we go third house, communications. That's like the first key word that often arises for most people, writing communications. They may throw um, short journeys in there, and some people may remember that it has to do with siblings, and that starts the process of interpretation. But the ancient meaning of the third house was goddess, and it did mean some of those other significations but it also meant sacred rites and rituals. And while the ninth house was religion and dealt more about the concepts of religion, the theory of religion, the dogma, the third house related more to the rituals that you actually do of chanting what you're going to chant of doing your malas or your chants or your invocations of lighting candles of other parts of um, the ritual and likewise of divination. And it arose much about the short distance travel of the local cults that each Greek city state had. And each little town had their own um, goddess who's, or god who's a temple was the central focus of the religious activity for that area. And it was there that they performed the daily and monthly and yearly rituals to their local guardian. And all of those practices were part of third house significations. Valens writes, if you have a person has their certain set of planets in the third house, they will be a priest or priestess of the great goddess. So in today's um, world where many people are involved not only in women's spirituality and the worship of the goddess, but also of nature-based religion and worship that's bringing it to one's local area, the spirits, um, and ancestors of the land that we're on. And I've noticed many young astrologers are opening their lectures with the acknowledgement of the lineage of earlier peoples who lived on the land that we are now on and honoring them. That places us right in the third house. 
of the honoring of local divinities. And so I think that for many people who are involved in this aspect of spiritual activity, who have many planets in the third house, it's so useful for them to understand that as that part of their chart rather than, well, what book are you supposed to write in your life? Right. So that's a really tangible way of maybe how going back and studying the ancient text can help us to conceptualize and know where to place some things that are happening now that astrologers would want to associate with certain parts of the chart, but but having a more clear connection and, and lineage with that. Exactly. Okay, great. Um, so in terms of that, I wanted to show the diagram. This is at, right at the beginning of your book that just shows the significations of the houses um, in the Hellenistic tradition and some of the just basic meanings of each of the 12 houses. And some of these are, are familiar from modern astrology, where some of these houses still largely mean similar things, whereas there's other significations that are a little bit different or not not what we're used to 2,000 years later. Um, do you want to go through through each of them? Like not in their entirety, but just mention them briefly? Well, let's see. Maybe we can just jump around a little bit. Sure. Um, and we might get to all of them or we might not. I just want to be a little bit free of the structure of start at Aries and go piece by piece through Pisces or however it is that we do that. Right. So, I mean, we, talk, we talked about, um, for example, one of the interesting ones about the third house that you mentioned is divination, which is associated with the third house. Um, one that I thought was interesting about the fourth house where it's always primarily been the parents and the home or living situation but also the fourth is associated with the end of life in Hellenistic astrology. Yes. Okay, and that has to do with the um, diurnal motion of the sun. And the sun rises in the east every day. It culminates overhead. It sets in the west. So when we look at the heart, the first house, which is called the horoscope, that this is the point where the sun rises every day. And in the um, sun's motion, it as it rises toward high noon, it goes in a clockwise direction through the um, 12th house and the 11th house and the 10th, where it reaches its highest elevation overhead. Then it begins its descent through the 9th and 8th and 7th, where it then sets. And then it continues its decline under the world, under the earth, in the sixth and fifth. And when it gets to the fourth, that it is its lowest anti-culmination point. And in Hermes, um, he likened this diurnal motion of the sun to the basic ages of life. So he associated youth with the first house in the horoscope. So if you had planets there, that those planets would symbolize events that would take place during the first part of your life. 
And then at the midheaven, where the sun culminates, was associated with um, the middle part of age. The seventh house, according to various authors, was either old age or death itself, where the sun sank beneath the horizon. But to the extent it was old age, by the time you got to the fourth house, it was the, the death of the sun that then from that point is regenerated in the underworld. And you see this motif very much in the Egyptian myth of um, the journey of the sun and the Egyptian book of the dead and the regeneration of the soul, that this is where the soul is presented to Osiris and the soul becomes regenerated. And then it starts um, coming up again, um, going through the second house, which is called the Gates of Hades. And these are the gates out of the underworld. And then is reborn again at the Ascendant. So that was the astronomical motif that brought astrologers to the eighth house being the end of life your circumstances of extreme old age when you would die. Um, it also had to do, even though the eighth house is, is a death house, the fourth house likewise was that had to do with funeral rites and ancestors and ancestor worship through tending the um, graves of your relatives who had passed away. And I... Um, have a friend in Italy, Anna Suji, who is an art historian. And she first um, shared with me some of her insight into this in terms of the plan of the Roman household. And you could see this when we walked through Pompeii and we saw like the ruins of the houses that were there, that you walk in through the door and this first room is a kind of atrium uh, that's a, a sitting room. And around that room are the busts or head statues of all of one's dead ancestors um, who are honored. And then she then explained the rest of the layout out of the house, but that there was that immediate association with the home and the ancestors of one's family. And that when someone died, they were laid out in this room for a certain amount of days where people could come and pay their respects before they were carried to their final resting place. So that's where we have the whole concept of the end of the life with the fourth house of the home and the ancestors all melded together in the um, traditions cultural and social traditions of um, an era in which the astrology was formulated. Right. Okay. So there's some then aspects of the meaning of the houses that come from astronomical properties that are being in interpreted symbolically, like in this instance, the sun rising in the east and the first house culminating, then setting, and then being down at its lowest and most hidden part of the chart in the fourth house. 
But then there's also symbolic and cultural things like the the name of the fourth house being the subterranean or under the earth place and having some of those associations of um, the underworld being sort of like the place that you go to um, after death and that being tied in with other cultural motifs in ancient in the ancient world. Yes, definitely. Okay. Right. And a lot, you know, because I came to astrology initially, primarily through mythology, throughout my discussion of the houses, I bring in um, many of the mythic themes and historical and cultural themes into understanding um, the significations of the houses. And my point of view is that both streams have their roots in classical antiquity. And so, um, and the, well, this is another discussion that I don't know how much we want to get into, but I feel that the mythology and the nature of the gods was such background that everyone just knew that there was very much an association of the meanings of the planets with the attributes and characteristics of the gods that they represented. Mm, right. Yeah, that would have been taken for granted in just the cultural context of its day. Okay. Um, and then, so that's really interesting. And then another thing that that brings up and that you mentioned in passing that's maybe really important here is that there wasn't always just one house that meant something, but sometimes you could have multiple houses that are connected with the same topic or different variations of that topic. Like in this instance, the fourth house being one of the houses associated with death and the eighth house also being associated exactly. with the concept of death. Yes. Okay. So um, a large part of your treatment then of the houses is just unpacking a lot of those different cultural and mythological and astronomical and symbolic things in a very like detailed way as you go through each of the 12 houses in the book. Exactly. And then showing how the meanings of the houses, while not necessarily derived from myth and culture, are minimally consistent with, conceptually consistent with the beliefs of the myth and culture and philosophy of the time. Mm -hmm. And they function as a sort of um, integrated um, understanding. Right. Okay. Um, so I want to I want to get into two houses in particular, but before we do, I'd like to mention just the significations that you give in all of them. I'm going to mention them really briefly just because I like your articulation of the specific keywords that you used for certain ones I thought was really good and, and really insightful. Um, but in your diagram and at the beginning of the book, you say that the first house signifies the life, the breath, vitality, the body, and the character of the native or the one who was born at that moment in time, the owner of the birth chart. Uh, the second house signifies livelihood and wealth. The third house is siblings, divination, and short travel. The, third or the fourth house is parents, home, and end of life. The fifth house is children and pleasures. The sixth house is illness, injuries, and servitude. The seventh house is marriage and spouse. The eighth house is death and inheritance. The ninth is religion, divination, and foreign travel. The tenth is profession, reputation, and actions. The eleventh house is friends, alliances, and hopes. And the twelfth house is enemies, sufferings, and danger. So one of the things I know that you put some thought into and you had to, you put um, sort of a, 
a statement at the very beginning of the book is that it's important to understand the just the cultural differences between you know now and contemporary times versus 2000 years ago and that we have to understand the original significations which within the context in which they originally practiced and somehow there can be major cultural or like moral differences between how astrology is talked about today versus how it was back then and so um, but it's still important nonetheless um, to be able to understand the original significations in their own cultural context and then we can once we do understand that we can choose which ones we use today and we can adapt them in ways that are more appropriate to the um, not just the rationales but just the cultural norms of today um, yes that's um, true and this was a, a, a thorny situation that came up in the various layers of editing and proofreading the book where there are cases where the ancient astrologers use certain words that are considered trigger words today. And there was discussion about whether those should be eliminated or changed. And I found myself in the situation of, on one hand, wanting to be sensitive to modern sensibilities. Um, and at the same time, not wanting to rewrite the words of the ancients, but able to report what earlier astrologers actually said themselves, rather than change it to something that I thought might be um, more palatable to contemporary people. And that became a very delicate um, operation in multiple places throughout the process. Um, and there are many points where we had different um, resolutions of accommodating those two different um, extremes. And so I think um, we did include a note about that at the beginning of the section that what I tried to do for the most part was to report the words of the astrologers themselves rather than try to, from my own point of view, improve or change or misrepresent them, even though that may have been a more um, correct thing to do in this particular area. And so... I'm aware that that can be maybe an issue for some people and I'm in the place of trying to be um, true to the scholarship and at the same time um, uh, considerate of my audience. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so an example of that is in the sixth house. Do we want to go there with the sixth house? Sure. I mean, one of the terms you used, um, I thought was actually a good like word to use in the sixth house, uh, is you use it, the word uh, um, servitude as the key, one of the key words for the sixth house, um, because in the ancient Greek and Roman texts, um, the term that was sometimes used was was slaves, and slavery was like a 
uh, practice and a, and a common thing in the ancient world? Mm -hmm. It was a very common thing in the ancient world. And what's important to be aware of was that the bad fortune of finding yourself being a slave was not due to only the color of your skin, but it was also due to, could be due to your ethnicity or to the um, country that you came from or to the challenging financial practices of your ancestors. And in the Hellenistic time period, there were many separate um, kingdoms that were the result of Alexander the Macedonian's conquests and then divvy among his military leaders. And those kingdoms were in a continual state of warfare with one another, and they comprised of not only Greeks and Macedonians who had moved there, but all of the um, Syrians and Phoenicians and Egyptians and Mesopotamians and all the different um, nations that lived there. And when these battles would happen, whoever was the victor, and these were temporary victories, many of them because of them they kept fighting, but the victors had the right to take every, whoever they wanted in the country they conquered and bring them back to their home country and turn them into slaves in their household. So there were many people who became enslaved who were not simply poor um, or a certain color or race or language, but also doctors and lawyers, physicians, scribes, intellectuals, Archimedes, who's like one of the greatest ancient scientists and mathematician, was an enslaved person in a Roman household to which he was taken. And so this was a very important query of ancient people going to an astrologer saying, hey, do you see in my chart my fate of at some point in my life becoming an enslaved person for someone else due to war um, that could happen? Or if a person couldn't pay their debt, part of the legal system was that that person and their family could then be taken into their debtor's household as slaves. So that was another way that um, that could occur. There are multiple ways. And this was a huge concern. And so what that word has come to mean in the context, in the, in the contemporary context of the Sixth House, among other things, is finding oneself in a position of servitude to someone else who has power over you, upon whom part of your economic well-being is dependent and that forces you into a position of servitude in order that you and your family can survive economically and then dealing with situations of oppression. And this can happen as a culture and it can happen individually. It can be individual people where, the, let's say, the ruler of the seventh of marriage is in, six, is in the sixth house of servitude. 
that via marriage that person finds themselves in a state of, you know, being not much more than a servant in their partner's family. Um, and when you, um, or in any relationship, a relationship between a teacher and a student, between two partners, between an employer and an employee, even between a parent and a child, whenever you have that conflation of the ruler of one of these houses and the ruler of the sixth house being in each other's houses or an aspect, you have this power dynamic of one person being in power over another. And the sixth house can give a key toward recognizing that and beginning to unravel it. Now, when we add to that that the planet Mars has its joy in the sixth house, and Mars archetypally is the warrior, and one of the ancient significations of the sixth house were insurrections, then you have the situation where individuals who have like been dealing with oppression for so long marshal up their Mars energy and that there is a protest and an insurrection and a desire for liberation um, from those circumstances. So when you take the sixth house and overlay it with work, worker strikes and worker unions are part of that. But what I just finished a five-day retreat on um, Time Lords um, last week, and we were looking at the chart of Frida Kahlo, who has Mars in the sixth house. And Mars um, is exalted in the sign of Capricorn, but it's also the malefic contrary to sect. And Frida is uh, very famous for the major accident she had in her life, the um, multiple bones that were broken, more than 35 surgeries, incredible pain and suffering that she went through and how that was transformed and portrayed in her art. But as um, the participants there started going into the timing of Mars using the Hellenistic Time Lord techniques, they found that it also showed up prominently during times of her political revolutionary activity, that she was a communist from the time she was very young. She had communist sympathies and was involved in political movements for the rights of the working class and social equity. And so, um, and that became one of the exciting revelations of the class scene. Mars was activated and there's Frida out in all of her physical incapacity protesting again (laughs) um, with, with the workers. So I think that Many of the contemporary protest movements going on, um, whose um, cause has to do with the um, oppression of different um, classes of individuals, that the sixth place is a very rich and fertile place to look for understanding um, the parts of one's personality. Um, the timing, the inclination for that kind of um, activity of 
um, uh, rebellion against servitude of any kind. Right, that makes sense. So um, while the cultural context of astrology has changed over the past 2,000 years, part of the premise is that to the extent that we can go back and understand the, the original symbolic meaning that was underlying the individual significations, we can actually find ways in which um, some of those meanings can still inform in, in a helpful or useful or insightful way our understanding of the houses today. Absolutely. And so that was my hope in putting the section on the houses together was to be able to do that kind of um, archaeological process of the houses and sifting like layer by layer to get to the original foundations and then to be able to see through that into what's going on now and have a sort of a clear insight. Right. That makes sense. And one of the areas where it's really interesting to watch the development and growth and evolution of the houses, or one of the houses in particular is like the fifth house, for example, where some of the meanings get expanded over the years based on uh, different concepts that become more and more prominent as the tradition goes by. Um, so the fifth house is one of those houses. And I thought we could go through some of those significations really quickly, um, just to give people a taste of what the book spends a lot of time doing and what it's really good for, because it brings a lot of source, a lot of primary sources that most astrologers aren't going to have access to of like immediately being able to pull 20 translations off of their desk, but instead you use your sort of library and your vast knowledge of all these different authors and bring them together in a concise list. So here's the section for the fifth house. So it starts first just by giving a summary of the Hellenistic approach. And it says, the name of the fifth house is good fortune. In terms of angularity, it's a succeedant house. In terms of strength, it's said to have moderate dynamic strength and support. Um, in terms of favorability, it's said to be a favorable house. In terms of ranking, it is the fourth best house in terms of that overall ranking. In the age of life, it's said to signify things said about the native after death. Uh, the planetary joy is that Venus is said to rejoice in the fifth house, and so many of the significations of the fifth house are derived from Venus and its meaning. Um, in terms of traditional significations, you say it signifies children, pleasurable pursuits, romance and sexuality, creative arts, good fortune and riches, and an increase of beneficence. Um, and then you list additional modern significations that have been added in over the past century are things like gambling and speculative endeavors and non-serious or non-committal sexuality. So when you go, though, into the full section, it breaks it down chronologically, starting with the earlier earliest authors and then taking it up through the medieval and Renaissance and modern authors. So under the fifth house, the very earliest author that we have access to is Hermes, as cited by Thrasyllus in the first century, who says that the fifth house signifies good fortune. And then Thrasyllus himself gives one of the significations of the fifth, houses, fifth house, he says, is children. Um, then Antiochus of Athens says that the fifth house signifies good fortune, acquisition of animals, increase of things pertaining to livelihood, and children. Um, then it goes to Vedius Valens in the second century, who says that the Fifth house signifies children, friendship, donations, putting forth emancipated slaves, 
good or well-doing. Lord of Ascendant or Fortune in fifth gives good things in accordance with its own nature. It also signifies the life of children and good fortune. Then Paulus of Alexandria says it signifies good fortune, house of Venus, children, benefics rejoice and give good childbirth, malefics become destroyers of children. Uh, Firmicus Maternus in the fourth century says the fifth house signifies the number and the gender of children, good fortune because it is the house of Venus, and that a strong association with the ascendant, it has a strong association with the ascendant due to the trine. Then Rhetorius at the very end of the Hellenistic tradition of the seventh century says it signifies good fortune, house of Venus's rejoicing, planets in accordance with the sect bring the good things of their own nature. So then after that, you jump into the Persian and the Arabic tradition where the author Al-Anzargar, who's maybe seventh century Persia, is dating a little iffy, I think, says that the first triplicity lord signifies children, the second triplicity lord signifies delight, and the third triplicity lord signifies legates. Um, then Solomon Bisher in the eighth or ninth century says that the fifth is the place of love, delight or pleasure, children, everything that is hoped for, everything in which there is trust, legates, donations, seeking of honor, seeking women and friendships of women, cities and their citizens, fruits of real estate. Then Abu Mashar in the ninth century says it's called children. It indicates children, messengers, gifts, piety, hope, seeking women, friendship, friends, towns, conditions of their people, the revenues of landed estates. Um, and it just keeps going through the medieval tradition and then the late medieval tradition where you get into authors like Ibn Ezra in the uh, 12th century who says that the fifth signifies the sun or children, gambling, food, drink, fine clothing, pleasure, gifts, emissaries, crops, treasures of the father. The first triplicity lord signifies children and ancestors' property. The second indicates pleasure and the third emissaries. Um, and then eventually you get into the Renaissance tradition where William Lilly says the fifth signifies children, ambassadors, state of women pregnant with a child, banquets, alehouses, taverns, plays, messengers, wealth of the father, stomach, liver, heart, sides of the back, masculine and succedent. Co-significators are Leo and Venus, who doth joy, thus the house of pleasure, delight, and merriment. So he's starting to bring in associating Leo, the fifth sign, with um, the fifth house itself, in, in addition to Venus having its joy there. So we're starting to see some changes. Um, then we jump to the modern authors, and we have um, Alan Leo in the early 20th century saying that the fifth house signifies offspring, generative powers, sensations, and pleasurable emotions arising from senses, energy, loins, heart, back, all matters of speculative character, concerned with pleasure and generative principles, planets show trends of past lives, worldly enterprise, all speculative things where there is room for individual effort and initiative, House of Heart, Love Affairs, Pleasure Seeking, Children, Artistic and Creative Capacity. So he's starting to bring in some 
concepts like like karma and reincarnation and his work in the early 20th century and then eventually we get to um rudyard but it's kind of similar where rudyard says offspring children artistic creation speculation amusements exteriorize exteriorization of self creative and procreative ability and recreations so there he's starting to integrate some psychological concepts and then finally, the last author you mentioned is Derek and Julia Parker from The Complete Astrologer, 1971, say that it signifies creativity, children, pleasures, holidays, enterprises, and new undertakings, speculation, games of hazards, sport, love affairs, and the objects of its instinctive affection, pets, playmates, sweethearts, afflicted planets indicate looseness of behavior and self-indulgence. So... You do that for every one of the houses and it's super exhaustive um but the point is that again like we said earlier this is a practical example of how it shows both on the one hand an amazing amount of continuity over two thousand years of astrologers in different languages and different cultures and different geographical areas who are passing along the same tradition and some of the core meanings are staying con surprisingly consistent over that two thousand year period while in other areas, we can see this drift and we can see an opening up and sometimes a shifting or changing and incorporating of new concepts and new conceptual structures that's taking the significations in different directions. Um, yes. And, you know, with, with Venus, initially it was simply children was by and large an, or an increase in good fortune and Having a lot of children was considered to be very fortunate because you had workers through your farm um, or your business, but also it was um, a sign of um, children were considered to be blessings. And with the trine from the first, it was the um, reproduction of the self in terms of one's progeny. Then in the Persian medieval period. So hold on a sec before yeah. you jump. So so the primary conceptual structures at that point then are just essentially three of them, right? Which is that the fifth house is associated with the Venus. It's a succeeding house. The joy of Venus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the fifth house is the joy of Venus. So they're drawing significations from Venus. The fifth is a succeedant house because it follows after the angular fourth house. And then finally, it's viewed as a good house because it's um, configured to the ascendant through a trine aspect, which is one of the best aspects. And so from that, they primarily the primary distillation is that it signifies children and good fortune. Right. And because it's the um, in derived houses, it's the second from the fourth. It's the wealth of the land, mm. which is good fortune if you have land that produces a lot of crops. It's the wealth of the estate. And that also brings that quality of good fortune into its understanding. Yeah. And, and also if the fourth is one's family and parents and ancestry, and the fifth is follows after that as a succeeding house, then what follows after one's current family is one's future family and the future of one's family yeah, lineage. Exactly. Right. The continuity 
through one's progeny, the continuity of one's family line. And that was important for ancient people that they had someone to carry forth their line. Right. So those are like the primary conceptual structures and to a certain extent, somewhat limited range of meanings for the significations of the fifth house in the Greek and Latin authors of the first through the seventh century. Right. And even though it was the house of Venus, and we think about Venus and love affairs, and certainly she did mean that then, but she was also, Venus was a planet that was connected with um, children and childbearing. She was a significator of having children, mm-hmm. giving birth to children. And seems that in the fifth house, that was the primary understanding of Venus's role had to do in the bringing forth of children. Now, this is not to say that the ancient astrologers didn't talk at all about romance and sexuality and passions and affairs of the heart. But if you read the text, they were discussing that more in terms of Venus and Mars as planetary significations, significators, with their various aspects and signs. But vis-a-vis in the fifth house, it was focalized upon children. Yeah. So so then we get, so it's somewhat limited significations for the fifth house early on, and the list is somewhat short. But then when we jump to the medieval tradition, starting with the pretty early Arabic authors like Saul ibn Bishr, they start really taking Venus having its joy in the fifth house much more seriously, and they start expanding upon taking significations of Venus and applying it to the fifth house, it seems like. Right. And so it becomes pleasures and all the things that give you joy. So good food and um, beautiful music and gardens and the love of a woman and pleasures of sensuality, not only um, sexual pleasures, but sensual pleasures of everything that enhances and pleases the senses begin being added into the fifth house um, um, area. And we also they also introduce um, ambassadors, emissaries, legates, or all the um, same words, because if one country sent out um, ambassadors to another country, they always came bearing lots of gifts. And so the arrival of a legate or emissary was like good fortune to get all this um, great stuff that someone else was, uh, some other ruler was um, gifting you as a way of entering into a profitable alliance. And so you see legates and ambassadors, emissaries, be very important in the um, Middle Ages, but then by modern times almost completely drops out of the tradition. Yeah, not a lot because of emissaries. Because now like, you're not allowed to receive gifts from foreign ambassadors. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking also of the fifth being, again, the succedent of the fourth, and if the fourth is your, your country or your home country, basically then somehow the fifth is a succeed in being like the sending out from one's country. Um, but going back, 
just so you mentioned, so Solomon Bisher is very first signification, at least that you list here, is place of love and the, the place of delight or pleasure. Um, so that's a really important sort of expansion of the significations where the, the tradition is certainly still following um, it's still following a very similar tradition and conceptual structure, but it's starting to, we're seeing an elaboration of that structure. Exactly. And it, from the Hellenistic being Venus primarily in her role as signifying children, now Venus in her role as signifying sensual and sexual pleasures um, gets added to the list of significations. And they're both like part of Venus's emanations, but now they're being articulated in terms of Venus's joy, place of joy in the fifth house. Right. So, and then one of the things that starts becoming important in the Renaissance, and I saw a tweet of somebody that was reading my book just a couple of days ago, that they were surprised by this statement coming at it from modern astrology, but they were surprised to read that in the earliest part of the tradition, they didn't have the conceptual structure of associating each of the 12 signs with each of the 12 houses in the sense that in modern astrology, the fifth sign of the zodiac Leo is associated with the fifth house and there's an interchange or um, drawing of significations from Leo and applying that to the fifth house, but that's not a conceptual structure that we see in the earliest texts. Right. And um, one of the ways in which we, that I think it was in Dario's 16th, 17th century French, in Scherner, which was the 16th century, we begin to see the first conflations of what would become uh, the contemporary planet sign house correlations. But where it began, and the eighth house is a really good place to illustrate that, is in the earliest strata of Hellenistic astrology in the medical astrology called Melothesia, there was the assignment of um, signs of the zodiac with parts of the body. And so Aries was the head and Taurus was the throat and um, Gemini, the arms and shoulders. And by the time you get to Scorpio, it had to do with the private parts of the sexual organs. Um, and then Pisces is the feet. So you have that very early on in the tradition. Then um, in the Renaissance, it was in Scherner, I believe, and maybe, maybe Dario, that they begin to assign body parts to the houses. And the eighth part is associated with, they said, pubic hair and genital organs. And so you have um, those pieces. Then it was a short step to, because that was associated, those body parts were associated with Scorpio, that you then put Scorpio as being the sign ruler of the eighth house. And once you have that sequence that took 1,600 years to happen, then that begins to generate the sequence of signs going with houses 
in the way that we um, understand them now. Right. So it starts initially with um, just the parts of the body and the, some of the Renaissance astrologers like like Lily and Dariot and Schoner um, in the 15th and 16th and 17th centuries starting to associate um, certain houses with certain parts of the body based on a crossover with the signs of the zodiac. Um, and we can see that, for example, in here's the significations that you give. Um, for example, in Dario, it says the co-significators at the very end of for the fifth house are Leo and Venus. So right. he gives not just the, the older like medieval and Hellenistic association of Venus mm -hmm. with the fifth house, but he also says that the sign Leo is associated exactly. with the fifth house. Although it's interesting is that for the significations, for the most part, he's still drawing on the earlier traditional ones where he says that the fifth signifies children, love, ambassadors, messengers, gifts, joys, play, banquet, apparel, joy of Venus, color, honey, rules the stomach, liver, heart, sinews, sides, back. So there it is, maybe the heart as one of yes, the body parts that's associated where the heart with, comes in. with Leo. Uh, with Leo. Yeah. And then William Lilly, similarly, he gives largely traditional significations. He says, in the 17th century, children, ambassadors, state of a woman, pregnant with child, banquets, alehouses, taverns, plays, messengers, wealth of the father, then stomach, liver, heart, sides of back, masculine and succeedant, co-significators Leo and Venus, who doth joy, thus the house of pleasure, delight, and merriment. So this is a really important turning point because what's happening is that now in the 17th century, the connection between um, saying that certain signs are associated with certain houses, like the fifth house in Leo has been made, but they're not doing a lot with that at that point, except for associating it with body parts. But, but because that was established, we then start to see in subsequent centuries, especially starting in the early 20th century, and then accelerating from there, astrologers using that conceptual structure and building on it by then taking more significations for Le from Leo and applying them to the fifth house? Yes, that's just the way it happened. One of the pieces here is to show how many of the first level significations of houses came from the planet that rejoiced in that house. So, of um, hence the Venus in the fifth house. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I've also shown that with each of the other houses, how much came. And then it was only later, because of the body parts, that the sign of that body part was added to it. And then once the heart was added to the fifth house, then Leo got added to the fifth house. Then the fifth house became the house of creativity. And while artists were always under the auspices of Venus of creating beauty. The Leo as a sign of creative self-expression found its home, so to speak, in the fifth house as a sign. Right. It seems like and that's then, And then we said people could give birth to children of their body or children of their mind. And the children of the mind became their artistic, their musical, their literary creativity through which they reproduced themselves, the trine from the first to the fifth, 
through not only their physical children, but also their mental and creative children. Right. Right. So, so you can provide a justification for that, ba- you know, on basic principles, but it, you know, it's fascinating to see the development of that over time. Yeah. Um, and in- important to understand the distinction in the, in the different eras and the stratification of the different eras and the history of the conceptualization of the houses so that you don't take it for granted that it's always been that way. Because in fact, many of the things that contemporary astrologers take for granted sometimes are newer developments compared to centuries ago. Um, so, and then just to round that out, I think it's most clearly what you were just saying expressed in the passage from Margaret Hone in the mid 20th century, the modern textbook of astrology that was published in 1950 for the fifth house. She says, creativity, principle of fatherhood rather than sexual impulse, desire to express oneself, risk taking, children, creation of the artist, author, or actor pleasures, making love, engagements, lovers, games, racing, gambling, speculations, related to Leo, the sun, fire, succedent, and fixidity. So yeah, really drawing in a lot of Leo's significations, and there's a shift more towards creativity and the creative impulse from Leo things. So um, that becomes then one of the main challenges, I think, for a lot of new students of ancient astrology is making the transition to, if you want to at first, just learn ancient astrology on its own terms, um, decoupling your understanding of the signs and the houses. And that can be hard to do at first because it's so ingrained in contemporary astrology, but can be a useful step just in terms of understanding the ancient astrological tradition on its own terms and what they thought the significations of the houses were originally. Okay, so that's sort of part of the goal of, of doing all of that, uh, basically, right? In this right, book. right. It's part of the goal. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, was that hard for you initially? I mean, it was kind of hard for me initially to do, to decouple my understanding of the signs and houses, but was that hard for you as well? Uh, yes, it was very hard. And along with decouple quadrant house systems to whole sign house systems and decouple aspects by degree into to aspects by whole sign. The whole thing was like um, very fragmenting that whatever you thought you knew and you believed and you understood and how you practice all of a sudden, like all of that was open to question. And there was a, a gap where that I think for people just starting out, I don't know as if they have that experience as severe as many of us who are totally um, ingrained in modern astrology who then confronted the Hellenistic that we had to let go of everything and enter this period of not knowing what anything meant again until we started to put the pieces back together. Right. So it was experienced almost as like a complete 
demolishing of the system that you had used for a long time up to that point and then rebuilding it, not taking anything for granted just from scratch. Because that was hard for me making that transition. And I'd, I'd only been studying astrology for four or five years up to that point, but you had been doing it for, for like 30 years at that point, right? Well, so let's say from 1971 to 2000. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's a pretty major transition to make and, and is something, you're right, I mean, it's not as hard if you're like a newer student of astrology, but if you've been doing it for a while and you're taking certain things for granted, it is like a whole transformation that you have to go through. Yeah, I remember there being a couple of years where I didn't know what anything meant. Um, and it was very disturbing and unsettling and hard to manage. And then there was some reading I was doing and the individuals having a Saturn transit to the degree of the IC. And in my previous astrology, it was like, okay, Saturn transits the IC. It's now going into the fourth house, and you're going to have, you know, perhaps added responsibilities with the your housing situation and perhaps with your parents, or there might be some constriction um, going on in that area, except the degree of the IC was in the third house. And I'm thinking to myself, well, no, like I can't talk about the parents in the home because it's in the third house. Like what does Saturn over the IC mean in the third house? And I remember like having a panic attack. And then what rapidly came out in the course of the consultation was that um, this person there, um, Parents had recently passed away and left all of the property divided equally among three or four siblings who were all having a lot of um, disagreements in how everything should be disposed. And so there you still had the icy meaning of parents land home, but now with it being in the third house, it was in the context of the discussion going on with all the siblings, and that's where the challenge was. And it was, I think it was in that moment that there was like one of those turning points of beginning to understand like how the, the, the transition could be made that wasn't totally discarding the old, but learning how to integrate it with another, with another system. So it still made cohesive sense. Right. Yeah. Especially in terms of that particular issue where in the whole sign house system and approach, the degree of the IC can fall in the third whole sign house, and then you get an overlapping or a doubling up of significations. Okay. Um, so, all right, so fifth house, we've covered that pretty, uh, and, and I guess this comes up the most prominently in some of the major ways when there's major distinctions in the houses, like, for example, the eighth house in modern times became the primary house associated with sex and sexuality. Um, but in ancient astrology, we see that in the medieval tradition, it was primarily associated with the fifth house as the place of Venus. And then there was also some ambiguity because I think Valens, when you get to the seventh house chapter, associates like sexual intimacy with the seventh house. Right. In my understanding of the seventh house as marriage and um, 
intercourse with one's spouse. That see how I can how I can put this tactfully. That seventh house arrangements based on partnership all had to do with legal contracts and commitments. And marriage was very much a legal issue where that there was a transfer of money for a dowry of land, of titles, of one person came into the marriage, then the other person assumed all of their financial assets. Sometimes children were betrothed when they were very, very young, and when they came of age, they were legally bound to become married. And in many cases, that first act of the consummation of the marriage was the piece that made the contract um, solid and fulfilled. I would, um, I'm just going to get a little life here for a moment. You know, when we do um, marriage electionals, and we're looking for like, well, what's the time? Is it the beginning of the ceremony or is it when you say the I do's or what it is? And it came down to it's when the officiant pronounces the couple, um, husband and wife, wife and wife, husband and husband, however the languaging is. And at that point, we um, would start joking it's at that point that you become responsible for your partner's um, taxes and debts. And any moment before then, you can be a runaway partner and you're not responsible legally for their finances. But at that moment, it shifts. And so in that way that Valens had, um, and everyone had put marriage and Valens had intercourse with one's spouse, I think People can argue this with me, and it's totally okay. But I think that that was the context in which they understood that. And that um, sexuality for pleasure um, was in the fifth house, but sexuality with one's legally married spouse for the purpose of bearing legitimate heirs who could assume the um, uh, financial benefits of being legitimate was a seventh house understanding of children. Okay. And then, you're right. And then when we get into multiple significations of the houses, the 10th house was also called the house of children and it had to do with children gave one status in the world. And for women in traditional societies, if you had a lot of children, it was a symbol of your fertility. You were more elevated in social ranking, and in village culture, you got better food. Um, if you were the father of the children, it proved your virility that gave you more status in, um, in cultures. And then you have the 11th house also being a house of children, um, in terms of derived houses being the house of stepchildren, the fifth from the seventh, but also being uh, was the good spirit. And most of the shrines in the ancient world where people went to pray for 
blessings and good fortune for the future um, were for those for the blessings of children. So in that way, children fall into the 11th house as well. So you had mentioned that earlier that one specific um, signification can be understood in several different houses that each give their own perspective as to the meaning or benefits of children through different lenses. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important thing that's much more obvious and prominent in Hellenistic astrology that you can have the same topic show up in different houses in different ways. And because Hellenistic astrology was primarily focused on natal astrology, that's much easier to see because you can have different transits through different houses or different placements that bring up the same topic in different ways and during the course of the entirety of a person's life and all the different multifaceted events and circumstances that happen, there's much more malleability in seeing those things show up in different ways. I think it was more later in the tradition, like once you get to like the Horary tradition, once Horary becomes more prominent, the medieval and Renaissance tradition, that we start get more start seeing more of an obsession with like narrowing it down. So there's just like one topic associated with, with one house because there is a necessity for that in order to answer horary questions where you need to be able to identify the significators and apply them to a certain house and then see if they're they're applying or not applying because that's how you determine a yes or no answer to the question. And if you have the same topic showing up in like two or three or four different houses, then, right. you know, it's really hard to know how to judge the question. Yeah. But this, it might be really important for us to revisit that, especially in the context of natal astrology being the primary focus and as prominent as it is once again today in contemporary astrology in the 21st century, that maybe, you know, we can have the same topic showing up in multiple houses and sort of be okay with that and find ways to work with that that are still useful and help to make the tradition more rich or the practice more rich rather than being something that is just like paralyzing in terms of there being yeah. too many different options. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's, you know, a whole topic and that's something you go into in a major way in the book. You also spend a bunch of other chapters talking about other ways that planets can become rulers of the houses and how the houses can interact with each other through um, planets becoming rulers of the houses and being placed in different houses, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So after this um, whole section of these are the essays on each of the houses, these are the significations of the houses over 2,000 years. Um, the second main section of the book is interpreting planets and houses. And in some ways, that's based on volume one, thoroughly understanding a planet on its own terms, um, uh, based upon its uh, condition to bring forth its positive agenda for the best interests of the individual. And then you take that understanding, it's well able to do its best, or it's a little bit challenged, and then you actually place it in the house. And there's um, this is a extended workbook section that goes on for more than 100 pages of understanding that 
a planet along with its condition is placed in a house. And first of all, it has to use the topics of that house to bring forth the matters that it signifies. You can't use the topics of some other house. <laughs> it's like it's to use it's the topics of the house it's in. So if it's in the second house, it has to use the principles of uh, generating um, finances through your livelihood and dealing with financial matters and um, all of that. If it's in the fourth house, it has to function through where it is that you live and what's your relationship to your parents and etc. cetera. Um, but it's not simply a matter of the house the planet is in. It's also the houses that it rules. So let's say Mercury is in the second house and it needs to make money. Um, it needs to use its intellectual, verbal, communicative skills to generate wealth. And let's say Mercury is um, rules the fifth house and the fifth house is um, connected to children. And so Mercury is res responsible, likewise, for one's children. And so the need to make money is so that one can support the children. And in turn, the fifth house children are the motivation for why you need to make money. So, and Mercury has a second house, so that there's the interplay between not only a house that the planet is in, but the houses that it rules that speak to its role and responsibility and the kinds of um, larger expanse for its activities. And then you um, also need to look to its own domicile lord. Um, and it could be that the planet Mercury is in challenged condition and is really like struggling to pull off this money-making endeavor to support the kids. But if its domicile lord is a planet, a benefic planet in good condition um, that has a favorable aspect, it will get assistance from its domicile lord and its long-term prognosis can be that as life goes on, its financial situation will get better. And so you're looking at the interpretation of a particular planet in terms of that multivariance of the houses it rules and the relationship of its own domicile lord. Then you move the focus from the planet to the house itself. And how does the topic of a particular house turn out? How does the topic of relationships turn out? And so then you're looking to the presence of any planets in the house, of whether they're benefic or malefic, if they're in good or bad condition. And you're looking to the Lord of that house and integrating those factors will give you the overall indicators of how your seventh house will work out. And so I take those dual approaches in that chapter. We're going to look at it from the point of view of the planet in the house, and then we're going to look at it from the point of view of the topic of each of the houses 
and how do you create those interpretations based on your knowledge of the significations of the planets, their condition, and the various signification of the houses that they're connected to. So it's a whole process in weaving a number of different strands together in order to get the picture, overall picture, of what that planet is doing in the chart. Okay, so this is really important because this is basically the key to chart synthesis, which is something that people, once they get to the intermediate stages of astrology, really start to struggle with, which is how do I put everything together to tell a coherent narrative? And, and it seems like the rulers of the houses, that starts being that intermediate key that you really have to understand in order to bring together different parts of the chart to create a whole. Yes. Um, and so... In the workbook format that I've developed, we take each of these piece by piece and we build it up from the foundation. So at the end of the sequence, you begin to see the pattern and then it becomes clear how to put that together in a meaningful paragraph or two. Okay. Um, brilliant. So yeah, so planets have meaning relative to their own significations. They have meaning relative to the houses that they occupy and rule. But then also you go into another whole section in the later portions of the book where there is the entire, um, the ruler of the entire nativity, where you start talking about the overall chart ruler and some of that doctrine among the different Hellenistic astrologers, which is, you know, um, legendary as being some of the most important, but also some of the most difficult um, things to establish in, in Hellenistic astrology? Right. So, yes. So as you said, a planet has a particular topic, it rules and its own significations. But then there are certain planets that in addition to that, they have roles in um, managing the life as a whole. And certain planets have more important and universal and global roles to play. So we go into um, then a careful examination of the uh, domicile lord of the ascendant, the um, domicile lord of fortune, and um, the trigon lords of the Seclite, and to show how the planets that hold those additional roles play um, the part of a supporting cast, let's say, in the play that's your life, and they hold up the foundation of your life in terms of the relative, using Hellenistic terms, the relative overall all success, prosperity, well-being, health, good fortune, respect, eminence, um, how well the planets support the basic foundations of the life. And then that section concludes with looking at what astrologers thought perhaps might be the two most important planets, the um, master of the nativity, which for those of you know, who know the Greek is the oikodespotes with the capital O and the curios, which is the lord of the nativity. And that um, those were considered to be the supreme rulers. But I also show that each astrologer had their own way of determining that planet and that there was no one uniform, universally agreed upon doctrine. 
And that's why it, uh, Porphyry said, this planet is really hard to determine, <laughs> but if you get it, it's everything. Um, so uh, I explicate the various approaches that the different Hellenistic astrologers had and then uh, work it out in the, my example charts and then show how each astrologer would have determined the master and the Lord. Um, and then how they would take the planets that were the five rulers of the nativity and then make the broadest statements about the life as possible. Okay. And that's really important. And this is the first time anyone's dealt with that ancient doctrine of the overall master of the chart in a really detailed and thorough examination of how the different Hellenistic astrologers dealt with that and in tracing it back to its earliest stages in the Western tradition. And, you know, it's good. It's funny because at the end of my book, if you read the conclusion of my book, I'm like, we've covered a lot of ground and I tried to pack everything into one book because I always had this this vision of like just a singular book that covered everything. But then I acknowledged at the end of the book that there was some stuff I didn't even get to, like the doctrine of spear bearing or, or dorophoria, as well as the doctrine of the, the overall ruler of the chart or the master of the nativity. And I made some offhand comment about hopefully at some point I'll be able to deal with this in some future book. Um, you know, but I was very much aware that Firmicus Maternus said the same thing, but he, we, we don't have that other <laughs> right, right. whole book that exists. Oh, where yeah, he dealt I'll with. get to that later. I'll get to that yeah. later. <laughs> so I, I'm extremely, that's the other reason that I'm personally extremely happy about the release of this book because you took that job on and did that. And that's exactly what you did with this book, which, which is an exhaustive um, examination of the different approaches to analyzing the overall master of the nativity in Hellenistic astrology. Um, so that I don't have to do that, and that's now in this book. So if people were curious about that follow up at some point, you know, I'm not not going to have to do that because you've dealt with that in this book very well and very thoroughly. So it's kind of exciting then in that way that I feel like this initial phase of the revival of Hellenistic astrology is now complete because we now have you know some a couple of books or three books out there that really thoroughly cover most of the major topics that are really important from that earliest strata of the tradition? Um, yes, and that was really the, I want to say the final pieces, but then um, there was still like one more final final after that. Mm -hmm. Well, that there are actually several more final finals after that, but it was realizing that while the master of the nativity was for some astrologers, important as a general indicator of the character as a whole, that for the most part, there was this obsession with thinking that it had to do with length of life and longevity. And that was the impetus toward trying to determine it. Um, not for the curious. The curious was something else altogether. Um, then in some ways was unique to Porphyry and because of his spiritual and metaphysical orientation that I, I discuss. But um, to the extent that the oikodespotes was longevity, then I do some very broad outlines of the different kinds of um, timing procedures and how each astrologer, once they had their own method of determining the master of the nativity, 
then there had, they had their own method of which timing procedures they would use to generate that final answer. And because length of life is such a challenging topic to bring up in many people coming from astrological, religious, ethical, philosophical points of view, don't think it's an appropriate topic to discuss. Um, and yet I wanted to include something about that because I wanted to report the tradition as it was practiced and what was important to them. And my conclusion is like, despite all of these machinations that all the astrologers did, I don't, it seems to me that not anyone actually got it absolutely correct. And they all will come up with different planets for the Oiko Despotes, different timings that they use, different ages of life. Um, and that's what I wanted to communicate with was A, it was really important to them to embark upon this quest. And B, it might be, um, as it's been said, that's, that's one of the things that astrology can't actually predict. Um, and so to leave that work out there, and it may be for other people to carry through, but with that, there was a kind of um, completion to this book with the knowledge that um, uh, bringing things to the end, the apotelismatics um, and the complete fulfillment of a person's potential at birth um, comes to its fullest maturation at the end of their life. And so dealing in a very broad and general way with end-of-life matters at the end of the book. Right, that makes sense. Um, and yeah, that's a really weighty topic. But but with that, you then also brought to completion, like I said, the sort of revival of something that began 30 years ago, and now the majority of the techniques people can pick up this book and have a, a pretty thorough overview of the vast majority of the tradition or the apparatus of Hellenistic astrology. And that doesn't mean that there's not other little subtopics or sometimes significant subtopics like different time lord systems or different techniques like solar returns or other things like that that still don't need to be investigated and worked out or worked on within the context of Hellenistic astrology, but that for the most part now, the, the revival of Hellenistic astrology is complete? Well, complete is, there's still a lot more there for um, ongoing students and scholars to do. But in terms of laying the foundation for understanding um, the um, interpretation of the natal chart. I think that we've covered, between the two of us, we have covered um, most of the material that's there. Yeah, that's a good phrase, laying the foundations. So in terms of the initial phase, I guess I meant, of the revival of Hellenistic astrology, there's something that feels like this initial stage is having some, it's having its Saturn return, literally, you know, perhaps not unlike an individual that has their Saturn return um, towards the end of, let's say, adolescence or, or maybe the first third of their life. And 
between the ages of 27 and 30, and there's some stage of maturation that takes place where you move from your late 20s into your 30s, and there's a new sort of era in terms of the then the considerations that you start focusing on at that point, once you have a more firm foundation of the first 30 years of your life, and then you start you know, heading in another direction for the next 30-year yes. cycle. I think so. And so for many of the people now who've been awakened to the fact that we have an ancient tradition and that tradition has um, been brought forward and who may want to work with it, have something solid in which to start, to which to do their studies and bring it to the next iteration that um, current young astrologers will inevitably do in the course of their own lifetimes in astrology. Yeah, that makes sense. And I also like that phrase used of laying the foundation, because that's very much a good keyword for why you would want to study this or what you can do with Hellenistic astrology is that it lays the entire foundation of Western astrology and therefore is good to learn relatively early on in one's studies because then it does become sort of like your foundation or your bedrock of having the foundation to then build um, and elaborate on and create a larger structure on top of that. But, but starting with having a good foundation by understanding all of the basic concepts and why we do what we do with, with astrology and some of the basic techniques becomes just a super useful starting point for further studies and further practice. Yeah. All right. Well, um, so and then that's that's kind of it. That's the end of volume two. And that's is this going to be is this the last book on Hellenistic astrology that you're going to be writing or do you have like you want to write I a volu I volume hope, three? I hope so. <laughs> OK. <laughs> yeah, I know it was a process. This getting yeah, this book it was out. like a long haul. <laughs> and right. um, I'm happy right now. I've been able to set down the burden. Um, I recently did a five-day retreat for some of my advanced students on Hellenistic Time Lords, and someone asked me if I was going to write that book, and I said, I hope not, um, and that my intention was um, giving them as much as I knew about all the timing techniques and allowing other people to carry that work forward. But one knows, like, one should never say never. And oh, I'm having some sort of loosing of the bond coming up in a few years that corresponded with the loosing of the bond I had previously that threw me into graduate school where um, I got landed in the position where all of this would happen. So, Yeah. Well, and I, it's hard to experience this until you've gone through it, but I, I feel like as a man, the closest experience that I will probably ever come to experiencing what it's like to give birth to a child or go through the has, through the process of childbirth is probably like publishing a book and like how difficult and, and laborious and uh, occasionally painful in different ways that it is. And I can't believe you did it twice now here in the span of the past few years of publishing two books of the same length and complexity. Yeah, so you're not looking forward to doing that again anytime soon. I think you have, you're up correct. for a <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> much needed break is yes. well, well deserved. Um, so 
the book, I said at the very top that it was released today. I just want to clarify that a little bit because we do have an electional chart for the release of the yeah. book, which just happened a few hours ago before we recorded this interview. And But there um, are multiple releases <laughs> yeah. actually have been going on. So over the past month, there was a uh, an electional chart for an early for the release of the book to everyone that had pre-ordered it. I think that was like what a couple of weeks ago or two or three weeks ago. Yes, I, yeah, it was like at the very end of March, mm -hmm. and um, I remember on Friday, April first, um, when I was teaching in Boulder, getting an email from my publisher Aaron that the book had been released. Um, or sent to the print, or the first copies were going out to the pre-orders. And I received that email within less than two hours of the transit of Uranus, a modern planet, being exact on my midheaven to the minute. So um, that was like a, a momentous moment. Do you mind if I show your chart? Sure. Okay, so here's your chart. Um, July 25th, 1946 at 6.22 a.m. in Chicago, Illinois, and your midheaven is at 12 degrees of 12 degrees and 54 minutes of Taurus, and your ascendant is at 21 degrees and 21 minutes of Leo. So let me see if I can animate the chart to put the transits up on the outside of it. All right, and you were saying it was on April 1st that you got that email? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, <laughs> there it is. So Uranus passed over on, on May 31st, 2020. It was at 12.52 Taurus, um, and then by April 1st, it was at 12.55 Taurus. So it passed over in that day in exact conjunction with the right. degree and minute of your midheaven at 12.54 Taurus. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That was yeah. That was that was very cool. And then when we were uh, speaking earlier, you mentioned last night that the solar eclipse at the end of this month will likewise be on my midheaven. Yeah, I just I think it's really cool that now that the book has just come out today, and so everybody, it's come out publicly today, and now everybody's going to order it and then start reading it, basically. Um, over the course of the next week or so, by the end of the month, we're about to experience a solar eclipse at 10 degrees of Taurus on April 30th. And that'll be also very close to your, your midheaven and your 10th whole sign house. Yeah. Um, and that was interesting also because I released my book on a, a, a lunar right. eclipse, yeah. a lunar eclipse in Leo is the day of a lunar eclipse. So I think that's really interesting and and illustrative as yeah the, the power of eclipses and I don't know maybe people won't like <laughs> that will be the eclipse as well or no will, I mean I, yeah I think that that's one of my in defense of eclipses I think sometimes eclipses can indicate really major events yes. and turning points in a person's they, they life can. and that can go either way it can be positive or negative but it doesn't always have to be negative right. That's, that's correct. So it um, will be momentous, however, significant, however it happens. Yeah, for sure. And this um, date, this release date um, of today, at least for the public release, 
uh, Lisa Scheim actually helped to pick the electional chart for the release today, right? Yes. Okay, so let me pull that up. Right, so this is the day Aaron announced it and... Um, Aaron Cheek, the pub publisher? Yes, and presumably when it becomes available on Amazon. Okay, so... And even though we're recording it, and I, we're recording this today on April 19th, and I said it was released today um, for Aaron because he's in Auckland, New Zealand, the release chart was set for April 20th, 2022 at 3.19 a.m. in Auckland, which had 15 degrees of Pisces rising, and, the, and Venus conjunct the degree of the ascendant at 15 degrees of Pisces with Jupiter also there in the first whole sign house at 25 Pisces in a night chart. And then the moon is up at seven degrees of Sagittarius and it's applying to a square with Venus from the 10th whole sign house. So that's your that's your release chart for, for the book, or at least one right. of the release charts. It's well, yeah, the public, yeah. public release chart. <laughs> the public okay. release chart. Um, and then la last week there was a really striking day when you were out here giving on the very last day of your workshop um, which is, which is you think might be one of your last workshops doing a, a big intensive like that on Hellenistic right, astrology. Right, five-day intensive on Hellenistic, yes. Yeah, on, and on the very last day of that intensive, um, the book, it was the day of the Jupiter-Neptune conjunction or right before it, and the print book actually showed up for the first time in person. It, it arrived and was in your hands in physical form for the very first time. Right, so... It's quite fascinating because initially after the publication of Volume 1, which was in January of 2019, there was the expectation that Volume 2 would be out um, by the end of the year. Mm. Um, however, it's taken 2020, 2021, um, two years since that to come to form. And at some point, it was like relaxing the tension about when is it going to be out, even though people had been asking me and concerned for many months and years and knowing that it would come out whenever it came out. And so it's been fascinating to look at this confluence of the transits with the Jupiter-Neptune conjunction and the um, my students realize, oh, my progressed moon was at 24 Pisces conjunct the Jupiter-Neptune conjunction last week as well. And so just in the same way that babies will be born when they're born. Um, when they're supposed to. When they're supposed to. There's this knowledge that with all of our anxiety about timing and astrology, that things will come to fruition at moments when they will and to just relax and be amazed at what the um, indications are at that moment when they come out. Yeah, for sure. And I, I know part of that delay, because everyone was asking me, like, when is the book coming out? When is the book coming out for the past year or two? But there were, it went through an, a really intense final year of, of proofreadings and, and revisions just to clean it up and make sure it was perfect or as close to perfect as it could. And I know Lisa, with her, I cited her in the introduction to my book as her, her legendary Virgo moon as being the reason why my book didn't have hundreds and hundreds of typos 
due to her ability, superhuman ability to, to find typos and, and to help me catch them before publication. And similarly, there was a huge year-long process of doing that um, over the past year in order to get the book in the shape that it is in today. Absolutely. Lisa is phenomenal in her vision and what she was able to notice and see and not even typos, um, but also consistency and terminology and concepts that ran like from earlier chapters to later chapters and making sure that um, there was that consistency. And it was like her job was monumental and phenomenal and amazing. And to joke that, you know, Aaron, my, Aaron Sheik, my publisher, created a 38-page index for both volumes. Um, that was something that many people had been um, concerned about, that there's no index to volume one. And due to Lisa's eyesight, there is not a single place where the space between consecutive numbers and a comma is off in that entire index. And like that was just unbelievable to witness her ability to do what she did. Yeah. So, so that was I have so much gratitude to her. Um and then to Aaron Cheek as well. Um and I say yeah. that he is the only person um in our community who was able to hold the work in its entirety and bring it to the form that has, it has been brought to on multiple levels. Yeah, so Aaron Sheik of Rubedo Press um, published volume one of your book, and he, he had done content editing of my book in that intense year in which I rewrote my entire book. Aaron was the editor, basically, of helping me to craft it and shape it into um, the final form and, and it made a huge contribution to that. And then after we were done with mine, you were struggling to find somebody that knew you know, ancient history and knew how to read Greek and Latin and could do a really good job that this book deserved in order to, to do a good job putting it out there and making it presentable and that there was very few people that had the skills and the ability to do that in all the different levels that were necessary. And um, I don't remember how that came about or, or how the referral, referral process came about, but I'm so glad that he ended up being the one after helping me so much with my book that ended up becoming the publisher and helping to bring yours to exactly, completion. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. So, and people can find out more information about the book itself through Aaron's website, which is rubedo.press. Yeah, just rubedo.press, and you'll find the entire description page for Ancient Astrology in Theory and Practice, a Manual of Traditional Techniques, Volume 2, um, as well as some, some snippets and some previews and a table of contents of all of the different things covered in the book. Um, you can also find out information about the first book there, as well as some other previews. And then um, it's not live right now, but I think by the time this episode comes out, it should be available in all other online booksellers as well, like Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble or wherever you go for books. You should be able to order it here from those sellers pretty soon as well. Great. All right. Um, 
So other than that, what else is coming up for you? I know, I think you're speaking at the Northwest Astrology Conference in Seattle next month, right? I am, and I'm going to be giving um, uh, two lecture presentations, uh, one on the seventh house and one on the, the eighth house. So um, I'll be demonstrating some of the techniques that I outline in the book for house interpretation. Um, I'm also doing a pre-conference workshop on the progressed lunation cycle, um, which I'm looking forward to. I'm returning to some of that early work on the moon and the moon phases. And then at the end of August, I'll be teaching at Nor at ESAR um, that will be happening back in the Denver Boulder area and giving um, one talk on Hellenistic astrology and a second one on um, the asteroids and transpersonal activism. Nice. Awesome. That's exciting. And those will be, you know, just some of your first talks back in person at conferences since the pandemic in, exactly. in two, two years. So it'll be really good. And I'm sure a lot of people who've been reading your book over the course of the past two years is a great opportunity to actually see and receive some of your teachings in person at these conferences. Yeah, that will be wonderful to see everyone. And that's what um, I'm longing for is the connection with our, the live connection with our community once again. Right, for sure. Um, yeah, because really important and sometimes unexpected things can come out of those in-person connections mm -hmm. like, you know, the for forming of Project Hindsight at a conference in 1992 yeah. or you, you know, stumbling upon into Alan White's lecture on Hellenistic astrology right. at a Northwest Astrology Conference in 2002, and then it changing the course of your life. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Brilliant. Well, um, thank you so much for doing this interview, and thanks for doing this book. And I'm really excited. I'm I said when the book was at the book release launch party last week, when we all toasted that I'm really happy that both of our books are out there and being read by different people together. And I feel like in some sense, they probably will be now intertwined in some way for centuries that students will be reading our books. And it's really heartening to me because it's sort of like a token of and a representation of our friendship and the work that we had together yes. during the course of our lives over the past two decades that somehow that'll live on, you know, long into the mm -hmm. future. And there's something really, really nice about that to me. So, right. That's how I feel as well, that our friendship, both on a personal level and on an intellectual collaborative level, that it's been through that support and feedback and communication that has um, greatly enhanced and even and facilitated the production of this work. So my gratitude to you. Yeah. And, and mine to you. Thanks. Thanks for being my, my teacher and teaching me Hellenistic astrology and now teaching, you know, hundreds and thousands of other astrologers, Hellenistic astrology as well. And congratulations on the release of the book. Thank you, Chris. Okay. All right. I think then that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. So thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode, and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, 
Sumo Kopic, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Morgan McKinsey, and Kristen Otero. If you like the work that I'm doing here on the podcast and you would like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. And in exchange, you'll get access to bonus content, such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the month ahead forecast each month, access to a private monthly auspicious elections report that we put out each month, access to exclusive episodes that are only available for patrons, or you can also get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. The main software we use here on the podcast to look at astrological charts is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we use a similar set of software by the same programming team called AstroGold for Mac OS, which is available from astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount on that as well. If you would like to learn more about the approach to astrology that I outline on the podcast, then you should check out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I traced the origins of Western astrology and reconstructed the original system that was developed about 2,000 years ago. And in this book, I outline uh, basic concepts, but also take you into intermediate and advanced techniques for reading a birth chart, including some timing techniques. So you can find out more about the book at hellenisticastrology.com book. The book pairs very well with my online course on ancient astrology called the Hellenistic Astrology Course, which has over 100 hours of video lectures where I go into detail about teaching you how to read a birth chart and showing hundreds of example charts in order to really demonstrate how the techniques work in practice. So find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. Also, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is available at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, and the Astrogold Astrology app, which is available for both iPhone and Android at astrogold.io. There are also two major astrology conferences happening this year. The first is the Northwest Astrological Conference, happening May 26th through the 30th, 2022, near Seattle, Washington. Find out more information at norwak.net. And the second is the International Society for Astrological Research Conference, which is taking place August 25th through the 29th, 2022, in Westminster, Colorado. And you can find out more information about that at isar2022.org. 